Hi, I'm Kim Carson. And I'm Peter Klein. And this is We Had No Idea. Episode 16. Oh, look at this. I put 15 up here. Let me change that. See, that threw me off a little bit. You're sabotaging me. PT2. Yes. We come to you from Okinsis, and we acknowledge that we get the privilege of living and producing this show on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Tsutsina Nations, the Iahe Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes on the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. You can find out what native lands you're on by looking at native-land.ca. The sources for the show today, origins.osu.edu, facinghistory.org, itk.ca, indigenousfoundations.arts.ubc.ca, canada.ca, eugenicsarchive.ca. Yeah, that's a weird one. Jesus. Sorry. Um, the, all right. The Canadian Encyclopedia.ca, Global.ca, TRC.ca, The Secret Life of Canada Podcast, Season 2, The Indian Act. Great episode. Really Good. informative. Hopefully this one is too. Hey! Nah. <laughs> uh, is there anything you want to say? How's your last week been? Warm, Hot. yeah. Yeah, and that's why uh, a bit of a delay as it's been tough to, to really get going. And even now you can probably hear the slight hum of our fan in the background. Yeah. We're trying to figure out how to, to do all of this. But also having this podcast come out on this day does seem um, rather fitting. Thursday? <laughs> Yes, Kim. <laughs> Thursday. Before we get too far into this episode, uh, we have a, a warning here as if you think any historical events of, quite frankly, disgusting acts that have been committed against Indigenous people in Canada will upset you, then please make sure you are ready to hear it. And the foundation of reconciliation is education. So um, this is, again... Well, we like to have fun on the show, this is not going to be a pleasant one today, as uh, last week was shitty, and now we get into the real shitty stuff, so... Part one, bad stuff. Part two, bad stuff. Right. Let's go. Yes, so again, a, a trigger warning. If this is something that um, affects your mental health, uh, then b by all means, just... Just, make, just yeah. make sure you're ready. Yeah, just yeah. kind of brace yourself, I guess. Yeah. Okay, well, also, thanks for listening. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for continuing to download our podcast, even though we're super messy at intros. <laughs> um, we really appreciate it. Rate, review, subscribe. Tell a friend. We appreciate it. Mm hmm Okay. In Indigenous societies, learning was, and in some cases still is, done through stories, examples, and experiences, through languages and values held by the many diverse societies. Stories and histories were told by elders, as well as information on daily living, fishing, hunting, hunting those sea caribou. Right, yeah. <laughs> uh, how to care for and live from the land, and how to prepare for har the harsh winter months while enjoying the flourishing plants and animals in the spring. Language was the connector of old and young, and from knowledgeable to learning. Life lessons from knowledge holders would allow the children to find ways to interact with their environment and to develop intellectually, morally, and spiritually. Um, a side note here, I always find it weird when I say the children. Mm. Would allow, from knowledge holders, would allow the children. Like, I don't know, it just seems weird to me. It seems hmm. spooky to say oh, the okay. children. Anyways. <laughs> uh, British and French settlers had a different system of education, of course, mm -hmm. in the 1800s and had standardized basic education in a school environment for the children. So upon seeing how indigenous societies worked, they assumed that since their type of schooling wasn't happening, that no type of schooling was happening. Um, I imagine we all kind of know what happens next, but I want to say, full disclosure, I did not learn about residential schools at any point in my Alberta education. Uh, ditto for my Saskatchewan education. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I actually learned about them in my second year of university uh, when we read, uh, I took a drama degree because I'm so smart. Right. Um, we had to read a few plays by an Indigenous playwright named Thompson Highway. Mm. So in it, like in reading those, you have to do like dramaturgy work when you uh, read any type of play that you're going to put on. And in doing it, I was like, what the hell are, oh my God. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I highly recommend Thompson Highway as a playwright. They were really good. I enjoyed the work and the study of those plays. So um, yeah, knowledge. Yeah, I I don't even remember when I, I learned about it. It just kind of like just heard about residential schools in this way. Oh, oh, geez. But yeah. even like 
in doing the research for this over the last couple of weeks, um, I've been learning a lot about this and none of it has been positive, but yes, no, none of it taught in schools. And I just want to say quickly, um, that is, I, I don't want this to come across as like anti-teacher or anything like that, because mm. like that this is fully on the people putting curriculums together and stuff like that, you know, like the, totally, the, yeah. the teachers are just running the playbook on that. So I'm, I have heard teachers say over the last little bit like they they are now teaching um about this which is great that there is more education happening on this particular subject yeah and like you're right yeah this is definitely not anti-teacher they have like 200 things to get into the time of 100 things so yeah yeah exactly yeah <laughs> and again they're not in charge of the curriculum which exactly, th this should 100 yeah. percent be a part of like every year they, like there should just be a yeah. yearly reminder hey by the way it's in there um I, we're gonna mention this at the end but the truth and reconciliation commission mm -hmm. they've asked it's one of their steps to reconciliation is age appropriate lessons and schools across Canada. Nice. Yeah. Both the Canadian and Indigenous leaders realized that something had to be done to help the troubles facing Indigenous nations, like, you know, how they were being colonized, giving smaller and smaller roles as settlers expanded, and were being forced to reservations when they were promised food and after their food sources had been taken away, but then were ultimately left to starve. Troubles like that. Yeah, troubles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Many indigenous leaders realized that their lives had been altered forever. Languages that weren't already lost started to go that way as English and French were imposed as the languages of business, bureaucracy, and the law. The law. Some indigenous communities collaborated with authorities in the building of schools on and off reserves, but just like the treaties of the past where something said wasn't something written, they had no way of knowing that they would be forced into giving up their traditional teachings altogether. My favorite fucking guy is back in town. John A. McDonald. Who Johnny. Also, Johnny, you butthole. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, he also happened to be Minister of Indian Affairs at the time, commissioned a 1879 study into how the United States tackled the same issue of not outright killing indigenous people, but snakily doing it while trying to whitewash any who survived. Um have I made it clear how little I enjoy talking about him yet? <laughs> uh, at this time, the U.S. had developed a policy of aggressive civilization of Native Americans. This policy, writes one anthropologist, had been formulated in the post-Civil War period by President Ulysses S. Grant's administration and was passed into law by Congress in early 1869. The key to this policy was a system of industrial schools where religious instruction and skills training would help the Native Americans catch up with the demands of Western society. A confidential report called the Davin Report advised the Canadian government to follow this model of boarding schools, industrial and residential schools were essentially the same, and outlined plans for the creation of 13 new boarding schools, making sure this proposal would not prove too costly for the government. <laughs> wow. Which is the important part of all of this, yeah. Yeah, is that we want, like, there? we got to this land, there was people here, now what do we do with them and we don't want to pay too much. Right, exactly. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Just a, a quick side note here. We said in our part one episode that the first residential school opened in 1831. This is factually correct, but it was called an individual church-led initiative to which the federal government provided grants. <clears throat> Um, 1846, <laughs> 15 years after opening, there's a report done saying that, yes, indeed, this form of assimilation works, and when the students return home, they bring their westernized knowledge with them. Then, 12 years after that, in 1857, the Gradual Civilization Act happens, requiring male status Indians and Métis over the age of 21 to read, write, and speak, either English or French, and to choose a government-approved surname. It awards 50 acres of land to any, quote, sufficiently advanced indigenous male and in return removes any tribal affiliation or treaty rights. So just to keep up, Canada is born in 1867 and the federal government gets responsibility of Indian affairs and land. And then 11 years later, the Indian Act comes in to try to eradicate First Nations culture in favor of assimilation into Euro-Canadian society. Okay. Thank you for highlighting that all again, because I... Needed it. Okay. So now we go to 1883, where the Davin Report and Sir, I wrote Sir Jam. <laughs> I realized that his his initials are Jam. So that's John A. McDonald. So anyways, 
he authorized the creation of the residential school system after seeing how successful it is at doing something horrible. The first Davenport report suggested school opens in 1884, and in a short 12 years later, 40 of them have opened their doors. So by 1896, the government of Canada and Roman Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, and United Churches have had the run of whatever they want with no plans to slow down. Um, did we mention that each school was provided with an allowance per student, which led to overcrowding and an increase in illness within the institutions? <laughs> Two models of schooling were pursued, industrial and residential schools. The industrial schools were to focus more on rudimentary farming skills and trades. Those were not boarding schools, although the students often lived in a separate building on site that served as a hostel. The residential schools were more academic, though they offered training too in farm work for boys and domestic skills for girls. Because, mm. again, not only are we doing horrible things you know, to entire groups of people, we are also very much generalizing based on sex of a human being. Yeah, we have to do different horrible things to different people. Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Let's just keep that stereo tra uh, stereotype train rolling here. Yeah. The reality of the Indian education model was not based on principles of schools or academic enrichment. However, the system was founded on principles of reformatories and jails established for children of the urban poor. Hmm. Some missionaries went out of their way to help indigenous communities in need, although they did so in an effort to convert members of these communities to their own denomination of Christianity. This involved denying the values of indigenous culture, spirituality, and traditions. A directive to the staff of residential schools in Nova Scotia spelled out the Western values the schools were instructed to teach. Quote, and again, can't stress this enough, not my words, this is, these are quotes. Yeah. In the primary grades, instill the qualities of obedience, respect, order, neatness, and cleanliness. Differentiate between right and wrong. Cultivate truthful habits and a spirit of fair play. As the pupils become more advanced, discuss charity. Pauperism. Pauperism. Indian and white life. The evils of Indian isolation, enfranchisement, explain the relationship of sexes to labor, home and public duties, and labor as law of existence. Yeah. As early as 1852, Reverend Samuel Rose, the principal of Mount Elgin Indian Residential School at the time, explained the following. These youths, the children, are to form the class whose histories... Sorry, that wasn't part of the quote. <laughs> it's just saying right. the children. Yes, no, he didn't then say the children. The children, spookily I, into the microphone. I do want you to know, as awful as these people are, anytime I hear the youths, like where you think like the children is like yeah. weird, anytime I, th I hear the youths, yeah. it's definitely my cousin Vinny, like these two yeah. youths. These two youths. I think of, um, I think Steve Buscemi. Oh, hello, uh, hello, fellow. Hello, fellow youths. Yeah. Anyways serious business. Right. These youths are to form the class whose histories is to be a most important epoch in the history of the nations to which they belong. This class is to spring a generation who will either perpetuate the manners and customs of their ancestors or being intellectually, morally, and religiously elevated, take their stand among the improved intelligent nations of the earth. Their part in the great drama of the world's doing or of want of necessary qualifications to take their place and perform their part, be despised and pushed off the stage of action and cease to be. This guy didn't make a lot of sense, but basically he is. He's, he's using a lot of big words and a lot of weird phrases to make himself sound smart, but basically what he's saying is we're a bunch of fucking assholes who think that these people's <laughs> way of life is beneath everyone else on yeah. the planet, so we're going to try to elevate them uh, because, again, we are evil giant assholes. Yeah. Um, sidebar That's a, a here. translation into regular exactly. English. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> From ye olde times right, to yeah. now. Yes. Um, I saw a TikTok the other day of mm. a woman who uh, was is white. But she was red in the video because she got so sunburned. And the whole TikTok was her just saying, how did anyone think that we were elite? <laughs> I literally went outside. Yeah. And now I hurt. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if we have not made this clear, colonizers, the government and churches at the time, wanted to eradicate indigenous culture, but keep the people, and in some cases, not even keep the people. Just absolutely awful like the the entire mm -hmm. the thing 
I, I said this in the last episode. The thing that gets me is they weren't even hiding it. Yeah. Like there are quotes and bills and everything written that is basically saying, hey, we are trying to just absolutely annihilate these people's way of life and then just kind of keep whichever ones are left standing so that we can have them for more help in our everyday life. Like mm-hmm. just, I, I can't get over how truly evil a lot of this was. Yeah. Prejudices against indigenous ways of life and a sense of cultural superiority eventually set the operators of these schools against their students and created the backdrop for the traumatic experience of the humiliation, neglect, and dismissal of indigenous cultures. That is one thing. Mm-hmm. If you are telling all, all of these teachers and if they are believing that they are morally superior to these kids, eventually... Probably not even eventually, probably rather quickly, they're not exactly going to be treating them like human children. No. The government budget for the original 13 proposed schools came mostly from cuts to government spending on other indigenous needs. Because of course it did. Because of course it did. Because of this, since much of the financial burden fell onto these schools, they tried to shift the cost to the parents, often with little success. Most schools use the children in their care to make clothes, grow vegetables, plant trees, raise animals for food, and perform chores necessary for the daily operation of the schools. And I just, when I read that, I was like, so they took them away from their homes where uh-huh. they were getting... Their, their form of education, which had obviously served them very well for a long time. Right. To go to schools to be, like, tortured and stripped of their culture, but to do the same thing. Just for somebody else. Right. <laughs> yes, basically. Come yeah. on. As we mentioned before, subsidies were given to each listed student at the school, which had the immediate result of increased pressure to use student labor to provide goods, foods, and services, and schools fought to recruit as many students as they could to increase their grants. Schools were now competing with each other for new students, even as late as the 1950s, often stealing students from one another, since the more students they had, the more money they got. This... Or these conflicts increased the suspicions in Indigenous communities, adding to concerns that the schools did not meet basic academic standards. Many parents now simply refused to send their children to church-run institutions. Against this backdrop, the majority of Indigenous communities felt that the schools violated their rights and expectations and that the government was taking their children by force. And then they do take their children by force. Right. It feels weird just singling out, like, one aspect of this that is awful because all of it is just terrible. But you know what no one says is beneficial to education? What? Large class sizes. And I get that, like, in in the list of awful things that go on at these things, hey, too many people in class isn't necessarily one of them. But just, like, from a, a broader standpoint, it is much more difficult to learn in classes that are huge and when you're just like stockpiling kids already your basic educational needs are not being met and now they're super not being met yeah Uh, At about the turn of the 20th century, some government officials also became aware that the schools were not meeting their goals. (laughs) Evidence of just how neglectful and dangerous the schools were for the students began to pile up. Reports of dilapidated buildings, shortages of fuel for heating, poor and insufficient diet, unsanitary living conditions, widespread illness, and above all, the general unhappiness of indigenous students. No shit. Mm -hmm. The government provided little leadership... No shit! And the clergy in charge were left to decide what to teach and how to teach it. Which is fantastic. Their priority was to impart the teachings of their church or order, not to provide a good education that would help uh, set up students in their post-graduation lives. Also, the distinction between industrial and residential schools was fading amid criticism that neither achieved much in way of teaching meaningful skills or trades. Finally, in 1923, this nominal distinction was abolished, uh, abolished and both institutions became residential schools. Hmm. So you have two piles of shit. Great, forming into one. (laughs) Combine them into one uber pile of shit. Yeah. For the Inuit, residential schools began much later than in other parts of Canada because basically the government chose not to address the economic and social challenges facing them. When the government did decide to do so, they put in the same obviously super well-working educational system. And in 1951, the first residential school opened in Chesterfield Inlet. With declining income from fur and fishing, 
from fur and fishing from like for <laughs> why is that sentence so weird <laughs> anyways the government feared the inuit would require state assistance feared right they would require state assistance as a result it started to force inuit children into residential schools or hostels which were smaller student residences western education the government believed would help the inuit help themselves by june of 1964 under growing pressure and threats from the government nearly 4000 inuit children or 70% of the fellow youths aged 6 to 15 were attending residential schools the vast distances between communities in the region added to what was already a tragic experience for most attendees of residential schools. In the most glaring example, in the Arctic and subarctic regions, students were taken from their families, flown hundreds of kilometers away, and were hardly ever or never able to see their parents again. In the 1960s, because we're not feeling bad about ourselves already. Hey, look, if you think this gets better, you're wrong. Right. Yes. Yeah, we're not in the working towards a happy ending part of the program. Mm -hmm. In the 1960s, the government removed as many as 20,000 children from indigenous parents, supposedly as a form of welfare. The 60s scoop. These scooped up kids were sent away to foster families who were often not better suited to care for them, and many ended up in residential schools. Others were moved to the United States for adoption what did you say in the last episode peter if uh if people could have just fucked off things would have been better yes i agree right yeah and there's a whole lot of not fucking off being done in this mm -hmm. like it, it's just i, I yeah. just i can't there are there are some times where if you see people doing bad things in history you can at least go i at least kind of see where you're coming from mm -hmm. it's awful but i at least i see what you were getting at and what you were driving towards and sometimes it starts out as a good like a positive thing and then the person goes crazy and it turns into a horribly negative thing right. i just i can't wrap my head around how little respect they had for these human yeah. beings it's it, like it from is, beginning beginning middle and current yes it, it's just it is mind-boggling how little they respected anything going on in indigenous cultures. Over the years, as a result of neglect and funding shortages, the residential schools saw many casualties. Students lived in crowded dormitories and were rarely isolated when sick, which made the school prone to outbreaks of diseases, most notably tuberculosis and the flu. The Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 hit residential schools especially hard. I mean, when you think about what's going on in present day life mm -hmm. and you think about how basically just piled onto each other all these kids were again no shit there were some problems mm -hmm. uh some of these issues were known early on and were readily ignored what for, i know for example dr peter h bryce who was a medical inspector for the department of indian affairs the dia in the early 1900s investigated and reported on the conditions in the residential schools on the prairies and his findings were ignored if not outright rejected he like, come on, what a make work project. Like, go check these out. And then he's like, they're bad. And they're like, Ugh. yeah, Can you no, please go not. in and tell us we're doing a good job. Just but, go in and make some shit up. Yeah. He but just, also, I, I just I can't imagine doctor's advice not being taken when it comes to oh my a, God. a horrible outbreak of things. <laughs> Life. He discovered that the health conditions were so appalling and the level of tuberculosis infection so high quote, as to jeopardize the health of the Western Indians in general, end quote. In his 1907 report, Bryce argued that of the students in the schools he surveyed, 7% are sick or in poor health, and 24% are reported dead. And remember, we're dealing with big numbers here. So, like, 7% yeah. of a huge number is still a very big is number. It's a huge number. It's not one. Yeah. <laughs> So very bad and now known issues with nothing being done. Please enter our next evil dude in this story. Duncan Campbell Scott was to run the residential school system at its peak between 1913 and 1932. In 1924, he proposed an amendment to the Indian Act that banned those under its jurisdiction from hiring lawyers to represent them in <laughs> land and rights claims. So now indigenous people who found themselves in any type of situation where you need representation could not gain access to it. Another way to exploit them. Like that's, that's a, a basic, like as you're getting arrested. Literally you're, I mean, Mar who is Miranda and why doesn't she have rights yet? Right. 
Like at, that that's one of the things they tell you when you watch any criminal show ever. Yeah. And it's like you you have the right to an what attorney. is it? You have the right to an attorney except uh maybe you don't. Like except if you're indigenous. Right. Just ugh. In 1920, Scott also pushed for and passed an amendment to the Indian Act, making school attendance compulsory for all First Nations children less than 15 years of age. As a result of the amendment, Indigenous enrollment rose to about 17,000, wow, in all schools and to more than 8,000 in residential schools by the end of his tenure. According to Scott's reports, at this point, 75% of First Nations children were enrolled in schools, which he attributed to a growing motivation among them to take up Western education. Like, he didn't see the correlation between making it mandatory, <laughs> right. I guess? I forced all of them to come into these schools. Hey, look, they want to come to school. Yeah, and now that, I have <laughs> now that I have dragged them away from their families, clearly they wanted to. You fucking dummy. While Scott did not think that education alone was sufficient for assimilation, he still pushed heavily for it. When he mandated school attendance in 1920, he stated, quote, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. I do not think as a matter of fact that the country ought, who says ought, to continuously protect a class of people who are able to stand alone. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body of politic and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. That is the whole object of this bill, end quote. So. Just outright. Yeah. I told you. It's getting just blatant. published in the fucking newspaper. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Telling this to people. Yeah. By uh, the 1900s, there were 18 industrial and 36 residential schools. Three decades later, at the peak of the system's operation, when this fucking Duncan Scott guy was running it in the 1920s, there were 77 state-funded residential schools in Canada. Shortly after, there were 80 schools, of which... Over half, 44, were under various Catholic orders, 21 under the Church of England, later the Anglican Church of Canada, 13 under the United Church, and 2 under the Presbyterians. Over the 150-year span of this, Canada saw close to 150 schools and 150,000 pupils. Right, so let's go back to that percentages thing. Right, yeah. The 7% mm -hmm. uh, who were ill and the 24% dead. Yes, of 150,000. Mm-hmm. Do All right. Want, do you want me to do the math on that? No. Yeah, that'll hurt. We put that information out there and then people can run with it. Right. Scott was blamed for the neglect and death of many children. Dr. Bryce, who did the reports and pointed out the many issues with the schools, found Scott's penny-pinching to be the main obstacle in promoting basic reforms that could have saved many lives. Bryce published a pamphlet in 1922 called The Story of a National Crime. In it, he argued that, quote, Scott in particular had consistently failed to acknowledge and address Native health needs, end quote. His work and findings were largely ignored by the Canadian government and churches. Hmm. What? Garnet Anjakonab is an Anishinaabe elder from the Laxul First Nation in Northern Ontario and a survivor of the Pelican Lake Indian Residential School. He writes, quote, I was ripped away from my loving family. I was afraid. I was lost. I was lonesome. I felt betrayed. I felt abandoned. As soon as the children were taken from their parents and placed in the school, the staff forbade them from speaking their indigenous languages, the first step in a journey leading to their assimilation. The schools followed directions from the central authorities. For instance, one directive in Nova Scotia instructed leaders, quote, Every effort must be made to induce pupils to speak English and to teach them to understand it. Insist on English during even the supervised play. Failure in this means wasted efforts. Many of the indigenous children only spoke their own indigenous languages, so often didn't understand what the staff of the schools were trying to ask them. Like if I just started speaking Spanish at you. Right. You, like, wouldn't understand what I was saying to exactly, you. Exactly, yeah. Which led to harsh punishments and ultimately forms of torture. Speaking anything but English led to severe physical punishment, isolation, and humiliation. Former students report having a needle pushed oh, through their tongues and receiving electric shocks. Another goal for... Jesus. Another goal for many of the religious orders that ran the schools was to convert the children to Christianity and replace indigenous values and spiritualism once and for all in an effort to instill in the students 
fear of the Christian God, some instructors frightened the children with images of the horrors awaiting them if they did not embrace Christianity. One student in the Kalamak Indian Residential School remembered that Christian terminology was used to scare students into submission. That night, just before she turned the lights off, Sister Mora taught us how to pray on our knees with our hands folded. Then she told us about devils. She said they were waiting with chains under our beds to drag us into the fires of hell if we got up and left our beds during the night. When she turned the lights off, I was scared to move, even to breathe. I knew those devils would come and get me if I made a sound. I kept really still. Someone was crying. A long time later, I was still afraid to get up and use the bathroom. In the morning, my bed was wet and Sister Superior strapped me. I had to wear a sign saying I was a dirty wet bed. Oh. Shirley Sterling, my name is C. Pizza. Sorry, I looked up this book and in the synopsis of it that it's like it's her story of going to the residential school in 1950s and how she survived it. And in the synopsis, it says by finding bright spots and thinking of home. Like you said at the end of our last episode, just how in awe of Indigenous people we are. And like reading that sentence, it sends like a wave of that same feeling over me. In doing research for this, I really like can't come up with a single bright spot. Right. <laughs> but then you listen to uh, survivor stories and even like the synopsis of this book, I guess. And the thought of going home and being in the familiar and with their families and having love again is like what pushed most um, people to make it through these residential schools. Mm -hmm. Oh, <clears throat> oh yeah. Another account from a survivor quote, I was always hungry at school. It was porridge, porridge, porridge. And if it wasn't that it was boiled barley or beans and thick slices of bread spread with lard weeks went by without the taste of meat or fish. Such things as sugar or butter or jam only appeared on our tables on feast days. And sometimes not even then I believe I was hungry for all seven years. I was at school. World War II and the Holocaust brought a new awareness of human rights around the world. When the horrors came to full light, few people could deny the dangers of racism, and people thus unaffected by it felt motivated to make change. The anti-colonial movement was growing strong, and the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 by the newly formed UN, many turned their attention to the rights of colonized people globally. In Canada, the experience of World War II left many troubled by two issues in particular. People were alarmed not only by German atrocities, but also by new personal awareness of unresolved injustices committed against Indigenous peoples. Many Indigenous soldiers had volunteered, they did not have to be drafted, to fight in the war for freedom from oppression, racism, and discrimination. Something they have a bit of experience with. Mm -hmm. This fact shed a new light on the dark history of Canadian-Indigenous relations. Aboriginal soldiers returned to civilian life, wrote Alan McMillan and Eldon Yellowhorn, brought with them new ideas about the relationship with their country. Their experience convinced them that unfinished business existed between uh, Canada and the Aboriginal population. Shortly after World War II, a special joint committee of the House of Commons and the Senate began to review the situation in Canada's 78 existing residential schools and presented its findings in 1948. It had to face a new reality. The indigenous population was growing. With costs increasing, the 1948 report called for the abolition of the residential schools once and for all and for the integration of indigenous peoples into regular provincial schools. For the next decades, integration became a key policy promoted by the government, but like the 1951 Inuit are subjected to the first residential school, so, you know, a lot of good work that did. Yeah, like this report comes out and then three years later they're like, maybe it'll work here. Right. <laughs> and just think about that last little bit for a second. These indigenous people, again, talking about like how like just inspired and how inspiring they are. These indigenous people are being put through hell in this country, having children ripped away. Now the 60 scoop hasn't happened yet, which again, LOL to those last comments, the, the worst conditions you can think of. Mm -hmm. And some are still volunteering to fight for this country. Yeah. To, to help protect it. Like just unbelievable. Yeah. Indigenous leaders were skeptical of the idea of integration. <laughs> no kidding. Chief, 
Dan George said in around 1972, you talk big words of integration in the schools. Does it really exist? Can we talk of integration until there is social integration? Unless there is integration of hearts and minds, you have only a physical presence and the walls are as high as the mountain range. Even with the changes, the residential school system lingered. It wasn't until 1969. So now 20-ish years later from 1948? Right. That the government withdrew the schools. Sorry, I was like, it is 20 years, right? Yeah, like it's 21, <laughs> but yes. Not 10? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't until 1969 that the government withdrew the schools from the church's operational authority. It then took an additional 25 years for the last residential schools to close. In the period surrounding Canada's 100th anniversary... Criticism of colonialism, and especially the residential schools, reached new heights. The Anglican Church came under scrutiny because of its association with the colonial elites and its role in the residential schools. In 1969, again, a book written by sociologist George Caldwell argued that students who returned from the residential schools to their community could not reconcile the Euro-Canadian culture they had been socialized into with Aboriginal culture they now find themselves in. Not quite Euro-Canadian, nor fully immersed in Indigenous culture, they were left to fend for themselves, marginalized, often unemployed, and exposed to a life of crime and alcoholism. The situation, rather than improving, was becoming worse and worse. It's like the story of Indigenous Canada. Yes. When Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau came into power in 1968, he ordered Jean Chrétien, his Minister of Indian Affairs at the time... I did not know that. Right. Yeah, I actually, I didn't know that, like, I just know him as the prime minister. Yeah. But again, you don't just, like, pop in and be the prime minister. Yeah, you're not just like, I want to do it, and mm-hmm. you do it. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> in... John A. McDonald's, because you probably fucking did, but anyways. Right. Um, <laughs> anyway, he came in to review the Indian Act. The result was the 1969 White Paper. Hmm. Ignoring other suggestions that focused on addressing the legacy of colonialism by giving special attention to indigenous peoples as a group, the government was prepared to launch yet another policy of full integration. Despite the legal language of equality, to indigenous leaders, this policy read every bit like the old programs of assimilation. The 1969 white paper recommended the abolition of the status Indian designation and... Gradually, all government protections and provisions for the indigenous peoples, including the Indian Act treaties and other indigenous rights. This paper was met with widespread opposition inside and outside of indigenous communities. The opposition would defeat, for the first time, the illusion that, quote, the Indian problem could be or should be assimilated away. Harold Cardinal, an indigenous activist, wrote a response to the white paper known as the Red Paper. In it, he posed a counter policy whose aim was to restore self-governance and indigenous land titles. It's almost like they can govern themselves. <laughs> Cardinal turned the debate around, emphasizing the importance of the Indian Act. Quote, the white paper policy said that the legislative and constitutional bases of discrimination should be removed. We reject this policy. We say that the recognition of Indian status is essential for justice. Retaining the legal status of Indians is necessary if Indians are to be treated justly. Justice requires that the special history, rights, and circumstances of Indian people be recognized. The legal definition of registered Indians must remain. We want our children to learn our ways, our history, our customs, and our traditions. Cardinal was by no means in favor of the discriminatory aspects of the Indian Act, but he felt that the act was the last defense against assimilation and the loss of the few rights Indigenous peoples had. In many ways, the act was a record of the injustices committed against them. And I listened to that Secret Life of Canada podcast about the Indian Act. Yep. Highly, highly recommend that, like, that episode and also the whole thing. Um, it's so well done and the hosts are just chef's kiss. Uh, anyhow, this exact conversation takes place in that episode. Uh, there's like this acknowledgement of who indigenous people are and what they've endured during colonization through the Indian Act. So while it's insidious in nature, it also is like it's this record of them. Mm-hmm. That's kind of crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it like and and like this um, this Harold Cardinal was saying like it's it's a record of the injustices and it's the only thing that protected them to continue to be status Indians. Right. Hmm. It's like, Hey, this thing is awful, but 
like it also gives us a little protection like that's just that's it, it so... makes us it, it clearly defines us as us in yeah. the laws that's yeah. it the only thing that's doing that especially when you know the government is saying like we want to integrate and assimilate and mm-hmm. it's like the jean Chrétien white paper is basically like i don't see color right <laughs> like that's what that paper was in 1981, indigenous activist Alberta Billy stood up and told the United Church Executive General Council, quote, The United Church owes the native peoples of Canada an apology for what you did to them in residential schools. Jaws dropped, and the stunned members of the council were speechless. But five years later, Reverend Robert Smith delivered an apology. The government and the major churches, however, remained unmoved, fearing that an apology would be read as an omission of responsibility (laughs) uh, and lead to massive lawsuits. They chose to do nothing. Right. In 1988, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations George Erasmus warned the Canadian government that ignoring the rights and land claims of indigenous peoples could lead to violence. We want to let you know, he said, we are dealing with fire. We say, Canada, deal with us today because our militant leaders are already born. We cannot promise you that you are going to like the kind of violent political action we can just about guarantee the next generation is about to bring to our reserves. The public's lack of interest or knowledge allowed this continued inaction until a shocking testimony given in October 1990 disrupted the silence. When the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of St. Boniface, Manitoba, set up a committee to investigate allegations of sexual misconduct of its clergy, Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs leader Phil Fontaine decided to speak up about his experiences at a residential school in Fort Alexander. On national television, he reportedly, uh, he reported openly, on national television, he reported openly on the information he had given the church authorities in Winnipeg. Facing millions of viewers, he talked about widespread physical, psychological, and sexual abuse in the residential schools and demanded a thorough inquiry. While Fontaine acknowledged that corporal punishment was widely used on many children and youth, the children and the youth at the <laughs> time, he argued that Indigenous peoples experienced violence on a different level altogether. He and others felt that because clergymen carried out the abuse, it was more than a private matter. It became a socially acceptable norm, sanctioned by the highest authority. When such abuse is made the norm, victims have nobody to complain to and, more importantly, no crime to report because such behavior is accepted as normal. The idea of who polices the police. Right. The media took notice and Fontaine's story was featured in all the major media outlets. A flood of confessions followed and the stories of many abused students referred to since as survivors, came to light. Stories of physical punishment, electric shocks, child exploitation, and sexual abuse filled the airwaves, providing ample evidence as to what, until then, had only been rumored or discussed behind closed doors. A series of apologies from different churches involved in the residential schools followed, um, which kind of rings a little hollow, I'm sure. Mm Mm-hmm. In August of 1991, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples was set up to address growing Indigenous discontent. The commission spent five years holding public hearings, visiting communities, consulting with Indigenous experts, and conducting research. At the end of these five years, in 1996, the commission produced a report evaluating the relationship among the Indigenous population, the federal government, the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs, and Canada as a whole. The report concluded that it was necessary to change the relationship (laughs) between the communities from the ground up to develop one quote on a new footing of mutual recognition and respect sharing and responsibility the rcap created an extensive 20-year plan of changes related to treaties employment education health care women's rights and much more the report highly critical of the treatment of indigenous children in residential schools triggered the first apology from the government In early 1998, a written apology was given to Fontaine, now the chief of the Assembly of First Nations. The government also set a fund of $350 million, quote, for community-based healing as a first step to deal with the legacy of physical and sexual abuse at residential schools, and laid plans for community development and strengthening indigenous governance. 
But seven years later, frustrated by the government's response or lack thereof over the years, Phil Fontaine launched a massive lawsuit on behalf of the First Nations Survivor Deceased and Family Class. He explained, We would rather negotiate than litigate, but we feel compelled to exercise all of our options. Each day, we lose another survivor. Each day, someone passes on without having achieved any sense of justice or healing or redress. The First Nations survivor, deceased, and family class agreed to settle the suit out of court in 2006, signing the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement, IRSSA, with representatives of the federal government, the survivors, the AFN, and the churches. It went into effect in 2007. As part of this agreement, the government was required to set aside $2 billion for about 86,000 surviving students, out of an estimated 150 students altogether, many of them forced to attend residential schools. Each qualified person was to receive $10,000 for attending such a school, plus $3,000 for each year at the school. In a separate process, the, quote, independent assessment process, survivors who suffered abuse were to be, quote, scored according to the abuse they endured and would receive additional compensation. As part of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established. Before its work got underway, Prime Minister Stephen Harper issued a public apology on June 11, 2008, on behalf of the Canadian government. The apology is part of the process arranged by the government and the First Nations as parties to the agreement. Part of an overall attempt to address the government's role in the history of the residential schools. It was reported that Prime Minister Harper's apology was, by and large, well-received by the representatives of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. But, about a year later at a G20 summit, Harper was reported to have said, We are one of the most stable regimes in history. Imagine my eyes have gone completely dead while I say this. Right. Because that's how he always spoke. Yeah. We are one of the most stable regimes in history. We also have no history of colonialism. Hmm. So we have all of the things that many people admire about the great powers, but none of the things that threaten to that threaten or bother. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Also in 2009, the Harper government denied the $1.5 million funding ask from the TRC to find burial site locations at residential schools, so do with that information what you will. Now fast forward to today, Mm-hmm. There are residential schools being excavated throughout Canada, and the amount of bodies being found is horrific. Children who were taken away from home and never had a chance at life. The TRC has calls to action that, it, it's a very quick read, by the way, don't be scared, but like all the calls to action seem very reasonable, especially after, you know, <laughs> listening to both of these podcasts. Yeah. Um, there's calls for health, education, justice, and more, as well as calls for reconciliation. And one that I found to be interesting is make age-appropriate curriculum on residential schools, treaties, and Aboriginal peoples' historical and contemporary contributions to Canada, a mandatory education requirement for kindergarten to grade 12 students. Seems reasonable. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Seeing as how neither of us learned about this, absolutely. Like, so then people don't have to walk around in life not knowing the absolute bare minimum mm -hmm. and, like, start a podcast in their late 20s about how they don't know shit. And actually, like, <laughs> this th this particular subject is one of the reasons why we started this. Because it was like, hey, yes. like, if we didn't know about this, what else do we not really know about? Totally. Um, And another thing is that Canadians and the entire world are learning very quickly about the horrors that were going on in these schools. Uh, recently, 250 children were discovered in unmarked graves at the former Kamloops Indian Residential School in BC in May. Uh, also, 751 more bodies were detected at a school in Saskatchewan. 182 bodies using radar detection equipment near the site of a former residential school for Indigenous children near Cranbrook. This is unfortunately only the tip of the iceberg yeah. once again go back to what we said earlier when the government set aside two billion dollars for eighty-six thousand surviving students mm -hmm. out of an estimated one hundred and fifty thousand students altogether yeah and like there obviously will be cases of you know people who survived residential schools mm -hmm. and live their lives afterwards and then obviously like natural causes happen but mm -hmm. For that number to be at half, 
and the last one to have closed in 1996. Yeah. That does not add up. I'm not a mathematician. I'm also not that smart, but that doesn't add up. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, again, the horrors of these schools are going to be unearthed more and more as we go along. And there's going to be a lot of a lot of this country's history that we are going to have to deal with in a very real way and a relationship with indigenous peoples that is still not great. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of this needs to, to be changed over yeah. the, the next, I mean, needs to have changed a long time ago, but definitely needs to change now. I a hundred percent agree. And once again, like we, we've talked about the, the horrors that these people have gone through. And I, I said last week, like how, any of their culture has survived is absolutely beyond me. And mm-hmm. the fact that some have even thrived as human beings is, is just like stand up and applaud worthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like every bit of their culture tried to be taken away. And like, um, we, we, we couldn't possibly cover all of this as this would just be like a podcast series unto itself and yeah. probably rightfully so. But th- this is definitely one of those ones. Like we are just telling you the like kind of nuts and bolts of this situation. Please go out and further educate yourself on these matters and listen to stories of people who have gone through this, whether it be people who had children taken away or people who yeah. were those children to begin with and just understand Everything that went into it, we, we covered the residential schools rather extensively here, but there was other stuff going on, like traditional dances were banned until mm-hmm. I believe it was 1951. So don't come at me with the, I just want to celebrate this country while you're trying to take away my celebrations away when we did that to them for a hundred goddamn years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there also is like so much coming out about the generational trauma and, mm-hmm. you know, I think about these people that were taken away from their families and now they are at an age where they are supposed to be having families. Right. And you can see this, like the, the generational cycle, like it's just going to keep repeating unless something changes, unless these calls are met, unless people can start their lives, not 10 steps behind everybody else. Right. Yeah. Like how, how are, how are any of these people expected to become what they're fully capable of when, yeah, they're starting like, yeah, you know, a block back from us in the race. Like, and there, there's more um, evidence now showing that trauma shows up in your DNA and that's passed yeah. on to children. And yeah. there's just like something ingrained in, in this next generation from the horrors of the last one. Actually, it's, sorry. To interrupt. Yeah, that's fine. I was talking to my know-it-all friend. Mm. Um, he listened to our last episode. And hold on. He said something. I wrote it down. It was smart. <laughs> I put a sticky note over it so I didn't have to look at it every day and think about how smart he is. Oh, yeah. There's these epigenetic effects. So it literally is written in, like, you know, people who uh, their grandparents had uh, food scarcity and, mal- and were mal and had malnutrition, Mm -hmm. they're more prone to diabetes because it's literally in their DNA that their body can't regulate food as well because their ancestors didn't have it. Right. What? Yeah. It's, it's like how we're not taught to be afraid of certain things. We just know we're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. That's how it is with them only on a much larger scale than, Ooh, that looks like a scary tiger. Like, yeah, it's the whole thing is heartbreaking and the whole thing is, Incredibly frustrating from an outside perspective, and I can't imagine living through all of that. And just, again, having people so openly think yeah. of you as less than human. 100%. So that's our episode. That is our episode, part two. <sighs> yeah. Um, thank you very much for, A, all the, the kind words that we've received from part one. Mm-hmm. Um, again, th- this was... Not an easy subject to go over. So hopefully you are able to, to give some thought to these as well. And hopefully we've been able to, to kind of push you in that direction. Um, if you do have any thoughts on the, the shows, either reach out to us on social media. The show is on Instagram, We Had No Idea Podcast. Um, you can also email us at We Had No Idea Podcast at gmail.com. Yep. Cool. Um, yes. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe. 
all all of these requests seem very trivial after all of these yeah. things that everyone went went through. It's like, hey, all these people weren't malnourished, but if you could leave us a review, that would be awesome. Yeah, how about you um, Google some shit first and right. then circle back to us? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, don't if do you it. Got the time? Yeah, don't do the review now. Go read some more and then come back to us. Uh, yeah. Next week, we are going to discuss Terry Fox. Canada's um, dad. Yes. So thank you so much for downloading, listening, um, and coming along with us on this uh, this journey every week. We really appreciate it. And we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.